Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we're just going to be looking at two verses this morning. Verses 12 and 13. We'll read verses 11 through 13 just to get a little bit of the context from last week to lead us into our passage. David Dunning is a social psychologist at Cornell University who did some studies and discovered that people have a tendency to overestimate themselves. It's probably not a shocking discovery. Right? He, he mostly studied... Uh, his students, Cornell University students, and he found that those who were the least competent performers, guess what? They were the most confident, right, in themselves. They had this inflated view of themselves. And so the study also revealed that their overinflation wasn't due to an arrogance, not at least an intentional arrogance, it was due to ignorance. They genuinely thought that they were much more competent than they were. Now, obviously, that can be true of Christians as well. It's not just a study, or it's not just uh, true of Cornell University students. It's true of college students all over, as well as those out of college, right? Those of us who have graduated, we've, we've kind of gone through uh, college in order to learn how much we don't know. That's kind of how I understood education to be. And so, as Christians, we routinely flatter ourselves with false assessments of our own competence. Right? We aren't even aware of our pride because we think we're simply being honest. Like, no, I, I really do understand these things. I have this knowledge. I have this truth. I have this um, righteousness. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So God is the only one truly capable of knowing his creatures inside and out, and that's why his word is so effective at bringing conviction when we read it, because it corrects our over-inflated self-assessments. If the word's not doing that, it's probably because you're not reading it, or you're not reading it correctly. And so we concluded last week with this exhortation from verse 11, to strive for rest, that we should be striving for rest. It's, it sounds counterintuitive. How do you strive for rest? And one of the ways we said was that you observe Sabbath-keeping. Right? That's one of the ways he, he commends in verse 10, uh, verse 9 and 10. And so we do that by observing the Sabbath. Another way that you strive for rest is by submitting yourself under the authority of God's word, finding rest in him. So that's kind of this overall broad theme is this rest. We've said that, that that's a, a clear theme in this passage where, where uh, the author of Hebrews has been making this argument that Jesus is superior. Right? First of all, chapters 1 and 2, superior to angels. Uh, chapter 3 and 4, he's superior to Moses in that he offers a superior rest. And so having just warned his audience about failing to enter into God's rest, the author now points to the exposing power of God's word as an encouragement for them to enter that rest. 
I don't forsake the rest that's offered to you by failing to avail yourself to God's word, to submit yourself under its authority. And so he's calling them to recognize how God's word strips us of any sense of self-confidence. It's a humbling thing. Why do we need that? Because we tend to overestimate, or first of all, we tend to underestimate what God's word can do while overestimating what we can do. We overestimate ourselves with an overinflated view of our own abilities, and we underestimate what God is capable of doing in and through his word. So the theme of this passage, or these two verses, is just this, that God preserves us by using his piercing word to convict us and strip us of all self-assurance. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, that you've given us this opportunity to come and to be humbled It sounds like something we'd want to flee from, something we'd want to avoid. And yet we can't avoid you. We are drawn. You have created us with eternity in our hearts. There's a recognition that there's something that we long for that this world doesn't have to, that this world doesn't offer us, that we can only find in you. So you raise us, Lord, to a heavenly perspective as we open your word. You give us that spiritual discernment. Give us that ability to be transformed as we read it. And this is not just a physical phenomenon. It's supernatural. And so, Lord, we do expect you to do that work this morning. We ask that you would open us up to your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Soften our hearts that we'd respond in obedience that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, You want to fill in your blank. The first one, verse 12, is pierced by God's word. Pierced by God's word. He gives us kind of three basic descriptions of God's word here. Three words that that highlight or emphasize aspects of what God's word is doing. First of all, it's living. Oftentimes, this word living is used in reference to God himself, right? The living and true God. Uh, You can find that just back in just a few verses, chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You'll see that multiple times. I think it's at least four times that phrase, living God, is found in Hebrews. It's found in other places in God's word as well. But the word of God is just as alive as God is. 
The word is divine revelation. That doesn't mean that we worship the Bible, but we worship the God who savingly reveals himself only through the Bible. And so we cannot know the living God by any means that is contrary to his word. We can't know him in that saving sense apart from his word. This word also implies that God's word isn't dead. It's it's not static. It's animated by the Holy Spirit, right? It's God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. So God's word is living. Secondly, we get this word that's translated active. It's used three times in the New Testament, uh, usually translated effective, and here it really has that same sense, right? That, that the, some have translated it powerful. The idea is that it's, it's capable of doing what God intends it to do, right? God's word is capable of working. Scripture has an impact. It always accomplishes God's purposes, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. God's word brings judgment or salvation depending upon the presence of faith in the reader. And so it's effective. It's living and effective. And then lastly, and this is the word that he elaborates on in the rest of the verse, it is sharp. This is the only occurrence of the word, but it's related to this double-edged sword. It's, it's a weapon of, for offense, right? It's, it's, notice the, the word isn't described, the Bible isn't described as a shield. It's not described as, as, as body armor. It pierces. It cuts. It divides. In other words, it brings about a genuine conviction that leads to true repentance. Right? This is, this is a, a, a metaphor for the spiritual work that God is doing through his word. It's used to cut, to penetrate our hearts. Robert Paul Martin says this, the writer here is not dealing with anthropology. Some have taken this, this verse to then imply that there's like three parts to humans, right? The, the body, the soul, and the spirit um, because of the, the elaboration here in verse 12, right? Of, um, sorry, let me find my place. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. And so they would say, see, there's, there's soul, spirit, body. But you don't kind of have to add a whole fourth part to the mind, uh, the heart. Right? All, all of these things are, are, are described. And the point the author is making is not anthropology. That's what Robert Paul Martin is saying. It's not an anthropological statement. It's, it's instead speaking an admonition. He speaks of an innermost penetration of the innermost man dividing the indivisible. And, that, and his point is that nothing is so deeply hidden in man but that God's word can uncover it and bring it to judgment. So again, along with the, the rest, heart is a, a key word in this section. It's found five times between verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, and 4, verse 12. It's not as common as the word rest, but it's still one of the key words from the passage. And the author is explicitly here making a connection between the mind and the heart. 
He says, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Both words, thoughts and intentions, have to do with the mind. So it implies that our thinking determines our passions. And we'll come back to that. Spiritually speaking, though, left to itself, the human heart will harden. Remember, that's the warning he's been giving throughout this passage. Throughout chapters 3 and 4 is, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Don't be like those under Moses. And so he's, he's using and he's, he's bringing us now to the solution to that. Right? Because left to ourselves, our heart will harden. It's like, this, like an unused muscle that just atrophies and becomes useless. Reading God's word, on the other hand, is like that cardio workout. It starts to get the blood flowing, right? The, the spiritual blood flowing through our body. I like this diagram that Murray Capel uses uh, to describe the heart. And he, he speaks of how, or he, he shows um, just a heart in four parts with the, the mind at the top, the, the conscience and the will, and then passions, all of it, all of those related and connected in God's word to our heart. We have God's word enlightening the mind, renewing the conscience, transforming the will, and giving us godly passions. Now think about that. There's, there's all those parts, and, and we tend to kind of maybe think about the heart in just one of those categories. Uh, oftentimes, we do that, right? We th- but but we, we lose sight of, of what God is doing and he, what he intends to do if we, if we exclusively focus on one. Think about just focusing on the mind. What is the result? It leads to a cold, hard heart. It puffs up, but it never expresses it out, expresses in worship and love. We, we're just building up our intellect. Only addressing the conscience can become manipulative, manipulative to, to just sort of give you um, a, a, a guilty complex. Compelling the will apart from the rest of the heart will turn preaching into legalism and decisionism. Just do this. And purely focusing on passion is nothing more than empty emotionalism. You need all four components to get at at what God is doing in you through his word. So the author of Hebrews is, is well aware of our tendency to underestimate God's word. And instead of assuming that we're arrogant, he challenges us to think rightly about scripture Maybe you've never really thought about the impact that God's word should have on your everyday lives. After 40 days of fasting, Satan tempted Jesus to turn a stone into bread. And how did Jesus respond to that? It said at the end of that 40 days, he was hungry. And Satan was saying, if you're the son of God, I know you can do this. He's sort of feeding into an ego, right? That he, that he's, he's hoping will be there. And Jesus responds, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we know the, the importance of food. We know the importance of sustaining our lives physically. 
with calories? Do we fill our minds and our hearts with God's word? Do we depend upon it in the same way? As we, as we open this book, we also have to open ourselves to it. It has a, a work to do in our hearts. It might confront us in our sin. It might comfort us in the gospel. It might help us out of our despair or encourage us to press on. But every time we read God's word, it might do one of those things, or it might do all of those things, but it's always doing something. God is at work through his word, and our passions follow what we give our thinking over to. So this, this can get very practical for you here, right? because if we devote ourselves to entertainment, that will become our heart's desire. If we give in to our evil thoughts, meditate upon those evil thoughts, we will more and more desire to act out that idea. If you covet enough, you eventually steal. And so conversely, when we devote ourselves to God's living word, our hearts align to his will. We heed the warning not to harden our hearts by intentionally using God's word. That's the solution, right? If God's word is actively penetrating our hearts, it will not harden against the preserving work of God's spirit. We won't be cold to what God is doing. And so how are you planning on reading the Bible this year? Do you you have a plan? If not, Satan will surely find a way to tempt you with plenty of alternatives. And he'll seek to keep you distracted from the kingdom of heaven or try to undermine your faith in some way. At the very least, he will ensure that you have an overinflated view of yourself. He'll keep feeding that. And so the Spirit of God makes the word effectual for salvation. That's what our shorter catechism says in questions 89 and 90. The Spirit of God is at work in and through his word. And so we're encouraged to read it and to hear it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. To receive it with faith and love. To lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. That's from question 90 of the shorter catechism. So... There's a lot of ways to, to, to implement this in our lives, to be diligent, to prepare, to pray. And then as we're sitting under its preaching, to receive it with faith and love, even as we're reading it in our homes with our families or privately. We lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In other words, allow it to do its work upon your whole person, not just upon your mind, Not just upon your passions, not just upon your conscience or your will, but upon your whole being, to be transformed by it. That's what God's word does when it pierces us. In addition to being pierced by God's word, so that we might recognize our own vulnerability, we learn that we are exposed to God's eyes in verse 13. That's your second point in your outline, exposed to God's eyes And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, disobedient creatures have been attempting to hide from God since the fall. They they feel vulnerable, ashamed as, as their sin is laid bare. And there's an appropriate sense of shame that's caused by our sinfulness. Psalm 38, verses 3 through 6 
The psalmist reflects on this. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. This is a man who is feeling the weight of his sin. Who's bearing the weight of his shame. And so he's taking it to God. The language of verse 13 here of hiding, of of being naked and then facing judgment. What does that take you to? It takes us back to the garden, to the fall. After Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. They knew they were naked and so immediately they hid themselves when they heard God. And this is the natural response to a sense of conviction. If the word has successfully worked on our hearts, this will be our initial reaction. We desire to to cover our shame somehow, regardless of how inadequate it is, uh, whatever it is that we find to cover ourselves. We know it's inadequate, but we still do it. No creature remains hidden, but all are naked, laid bare before God. This word for exposed is actually much more graphic in the Greek. But what what precisely it means is debatable, and I'll just give you two basic options here. One is that he's saying that it's like lying on your back, right? And he's already said naked, so lying on your back, exposing what we would respectfully keep covered. But I think it's even more likely that it's a reference to the altar and this sacrificial animal that's lying on the altar. The word literally includes neck in the Greek. And it, it's, a, it's a compound word that, that has neck. In the word, it's like uh, trachelos, which is you hear trachea, right? So it may reference, one, this, the breaking of an animal's neck, which is going to leave that animal paralyzed on the altar. Or it may reference a priest inspecting the sacrificial animal for blemishes. Not only is the exterior of the animal observed, but also the inward parts are exposed as the priest cuts the animal open from the neck down, both at its stomach and on the backside, completely exposing it for observation. I told you it was graphic. In either case, the interpretation gives this impression of utter vulnerability. Not a a single part of us can be hidden from God's eyes. We are unable to hide ourselves. So the word of God leaves everyone stripped and exposed to the scrutiny of the eyes of our judge, him to whom we must reckon to give an account. A lot of research has been done on the concept of shame. Psychologists have realized how powerful of an emotion it is and how, how often shame lies at the root of those outward expressions of emotions, anger, jealousy, fear. And our flesh craves to dismiss the shame 
so that it, it attempts to, to cover it up. And we even do so with more sin. All right, by lashing out. However, shame also serves to conform us to a proper conduct. And since we despise the feeling of shame so much, we seek to avoid whatever causes it. So shame discourages the behavior that it draws out. Now, therein lies the catch-22. Right? Because if reading the word of God leaves us naked and exposed, why would we devote ourselves to it? It would make much more sense for us to avoid it as much as possible. See, the problem is not the sense of shame that we feel. That itself is unavoidable. You'll feel that whether you decide never to read God's word again, never to return to a church. Shame is unavoidable. And the problem is what you do with that shame, right? Ultimately, the only good solution is to bring our shame before the God against whom we have rebelled. And there's a sense in which this, too, is unavoidable. John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And so even if we know we cannot fool God, by fooling everyone else, we essentially isolate ourselves from family, from friends, from the church community. And this protective instinct, as we've said, is understandable. But it does stem from an unbelief. That if, if people see who we truly are, they'll reject us. They won't accept us. And so we keep ourselves hidden. Underneath that assumption is the fear that God hasn't accepted us. Because we know that God has seen us, we feel rejected and condemned. Now, that's in our flesh. When we understand the gospel, everything changes. God knew every sin we would ever commit, but he still sent his son. Jesus saw the depth of our depravity, but he still died for us while we were enemies. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He's seen us inside and out, and yet he promises to preserve us in the palm of his hand. And so we take God's word with the precision of a scalpel that penetrates our hearts and it exposes any waywardness that remains in our lives. And we willingly open ourselves up to that examination before the great day of God's judgment settles it. Now, the paradox is that humbling ourselves before God, exposing our rebellious hearts, actually brings us to the hope for relief, the gospel. And instead of relentlessly trying to suppress our guilt and bearing the weight of our shame, Jesus offers to remove our sin and to give us his righteousness. And so we've been reading through the Psalms because the author of Hebrews quotes or alludes to the Psalms more than any other book. And so it's appropriate for us to find some relevance there as we conclude. And so I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 103. 
Psalm 103, we'll read verses 8 through 12. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So the word of God continues to pierce us and we find ourselves vulnerable before our great judge. But in Christ, we've come to know his steadfast love toward us. And so instead of condemnation, we receive mercy and grace from him. And so let us draw near to him with confidence. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message that reminds us of our dependence upon your word. Even as we depend upon food to sustain our lives, we depend upon your word for spiritual sustenance, to bring us to that sense of conviction over our sin and our rebellion, and once again to comfort us by the truth of your gospel, that Christ has taken our penalty in our place, and he's given us his righteousness. And it's only in, in and through that exchange that we can come to you as children to a father. That we can be confident as we approach your throne of grace. And that we can cast our burdens and our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us because you have taken the worst of us and put it to death. And you've given us what we don't deserve. So Lord, it's with gratitude that we pray to you and we thank you for your mercy and grace in our lives. And one of the ways that you show us these truths is is by bringing us here to sit under your word. And as we read it secretly, as we read it with our families, Lord, each time you're doing a work in our hearts, slowly transforming us, taking our eyes off of this world and off of our flesh, causing us to meditate upon things that are far more grand. Let's give us a sight of the eternal glory that awaits us, that inheritance that is kept in heaven, reserved for us. Lord, fill us with a great sense of anticipation for that day, that as we open your word, we would know you're doing a work to prepare us for that day. And that even now, Lord, we get a taste of that as your spirit actively penetrates our hearts through your word and we respond in obedience. Faithful to hear the call. And so, Lord, may you be lifted up. May we be humbled before your majesty. 
And as we participate and celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, may that communion remind us of your steadfast love for us. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, hymn 436, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place, hymn 436.